0: going to ask you, if you would, to find a place in Ephesians chapter 2 as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, we'll look there first and then look at how Luke chapter 9 is informed by what we find in Ephesians 2. Before we read the text then, what I'd like to do is say something to the boys and girls and to the parents. You know that for some time now we've been gathering together with even the children on the first and the fifth week of any month And there's a number of reasons why we do that, some of that due to uh, workers that are available for us in in the, the child hour and to ensure that they have time to hear the Word of God preached, but also a part of that is so that we might have an opportunity as parents and as a congregation to instruct our children in the faith and to help them to learn how to learn in this kind of setting, which for a child can be a bit boring and mundane, but It's something that we need to learn so we might hear the word preached as we grow. And so children, I have one thing to say to you as you look up from your notes and you consider this. If you could look at the Old Testament, there's really just one commandment that is directed primarily to children. Honor your mom and dad. Honor your father and mother. And I say that because it's really, if if I were to give you several hundred commandments, that's a lot to remember. So you got one. Honor your father and mother. And they get all the rest, and they have to make sure that you uh, learn the rest. That's their responsibility. But you can really bless them by honoring them. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. Think of one thing you learned today. And when you go to lunch, you tell your mom and your dad what's that one thing that you learned that was really striking to you. And we'll pray that the Lord would help you to remember. So let's look now at Luke chapter 9 in verse one through 11, I'll read, and then we'll turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read in Ephesians 2, 11 to the end of that particular chapter. In Luke chapter 9, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, "'Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics.'" Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart, and wherever they do not receive you. When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of of God and cured those who had need of healing. And now turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding. Help us to attend well to these things. Help us not to be distracted. We pray for those young ones among us. We pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in their minds and in their hearts, that they might receive one good, precious thing from your word and treasure that up. For all their days. We pray for ourselves, O oh Lord, that you would cause us to receive your word planted deep within us, in our minds and in our hearts, that we, as always, might be people who hear your word and people who go forth as doers of your word, people who go forth trusting more firmly, more fully in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, now as we look at this text, we'll look briefly at Ephesians 2, and I'll draw attention to just a couple things that I want you to see from this text. Namely, the way in which Paul, the apostle in this letter, describes the Christian church. Notice that he describes that God has broken down a certain dividing wall. Under the old covenant, his people was described by an ethnic boundary, by a national boundary, as the people of Israel. And people could come into the people of God, through a series of steps where they would join themselves to the people of Israel. But as you can imagine, it was not a common thing that happened very much in that time. It did happen some, and there are people who did come to a saving knowledge of God through saving faith, apart from being born an Israelite. But under the Old Covenant, by and large, the people of God were composed of Israelites. But in the coming of Christ, something dramatically changed. God broke down that dividing wall and brought those who were far off. He brought them near. He proclaimed peace through Jesus Christ. As Jesus went preaching the gospel of the kingdom, He was proclaiming a message of peace with God. That people through faith in Him could come to God and have peace with Almighty God in spite of their sin because He accomplished what was necessary to reconcile us to God through His death on the cross, through His blood, it's an amazing and glorious promise. And so Paul wants these Ephesian Christians to know that those who were far off have been brought near as one people through the one Spirit of God on the basis of the one sacrifice that has been made by the only Son of God. It's amazing and beautiful truth. What I want to draw your attention then to is the way in which Paul vividly paints a picture of what God is accomplishing in the end of that passage. He is, as it were, building a house. At one point he likens us, describes us as the household of God, but then he begins to describe us, as we read this morning from 1 Peter as well, begins to describe us as a building that is built up. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We confessed that this morning as we read from the words of 1 Peter as well. As Peter wrote about the very same thing, Christ being that prophesied cornerstone from Psalm 118. The apostles and the prophets here, as we see in Ephesians, being the foundation on which this structure is built. And we are built into it. We are joined into it as if we were stones in this building that God is constructing, this holy temple that he is constructing. We are being built together as we are bound together by God through his one Holy Spirit. Why do I draw your attention to Ephesians 2 as you turn back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9? It's namely this. In the unfolding narrative of Luke's gospel, here we are going to see another stage in the development of the disciples' ministry, of their apostleship. And as we see the unfolding of this picture of Jesus' training of the twelve, we start to understand how it is that he laid them as a foundation for his church. How they with the prophets are a foundation. And how Jesus himself is the cornerstone, the one who binds it all together. I want you to appreciate that. As we look at the text, if I were to summarize in a short paragraph the argument of my sermon, it's that this text in Luke helps to ground the unique authority of the apostles. But it also assures us of Christ's power and provision as it reminds us of the need to trust Christ in all things. The apostles have an authority that is derived. It is not within them, but it is derived from Christ. Christ. Their authority is a derived authority received from Christ and authenticated as they ministered with the same power with which Christ in His human life, and His ministry on earth, ministered. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. They were entrusted with the same power, the same message, the same character, and the same suffering as their Lord. It follows that if we are to follow Christ, if we are to be built up on this foundation, and though we might not share in the particulars of their, particular, their specific ministry, we may not share their particular authority and the signs that they were able to perform. But the principles, the same principles of faithful dependence upon Christ Jesus our Lord, apply to us as disciples of our Lord. That's the argument in a nutshell. And the way in which I want to show this, besides looking closely at the text and the instructions that Jesus gives, is also by tracing a broad picture across Luke and even a little bit of Acts to see the development of the disciples and also to understand what Herod has to do with all of this. So let me begin by tracing that story. I'll remind you, for those who have not been here, for those who have been here, if we turn back to Luke chapter 5 at the very beginning of that text... We saw that there Jesus called his first disciples, Peter and James and John, through a fishing expedition. He took them out on the sea and he preached. And then after he was done preaching, after they had fished all night and caught nothing, he told them, cast your nets to the side. And Peter registered his protest. We had fished all night and caught nothing. But then they obeyed the Lord. They obeyed him and they did what he said and they caught a great catch of fish in which Jesus demonstrated his lordship. And as He called them in that text, He assured them of this when He said, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. That He was going to make something of them. That He was going to make them not just better fishermen, but fishers of men. And throughout the unfolding of Luke's gospel, we've seen at various stages of Jesus' ministry, the disciples come back into our focus in Luke 5. 33 through 65, we saw that people questioned their actions. Some said, why do John's disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And later, some said, why is it that you allow your disciple to pluck heads of grain as they pass through a field on the Sabbath? Aren't they working? Why do you permit this? They were accusing the disciples. They were bringing charges against them and against their Lord, their teacher. And Jesus defended them against their accusers by reference to himself. The reason they weren't fasting was because the bridegroom, he said, is with them. He is the bridegroom, and God's people is the bride. How can they fast? In the presence of their Lord. And the reason why they pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath, Jesus doesn't make an argument to show that these people don't have misunderstood the Sabbath commands. He simply asserts his own lordship. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And then... From his disciples who were part of this mix in Luke chapter 6 verse 12 and following, he takes 12 and he appoints them and names them as apostles, unique sent ones, who later we'll find, as we start to see in this text, are going to be given a particular authority by Jesus, a unique authority to proclaim the gospel that he himself proclaimed. Again, as we Continue in this narrative in Luke 6, verse 20, in the Sermon on the Plain that we spent a few weeks looking at, we see that Jesus teaches his disciples how to live life in the kingdom that he is coming, has come to inaugurate, that he has inaugurated. And then in Luke 8, he gives them access through parables to the secrets of that kingdom that he himself inaugurated. In Luke 8, when he calmed the wind and the waves, he again demonstrated them, to them in a mighty way His Lordship over all creation. And all of these things form the context from which we begin to see His calling of the apostles. They are to understand that the commission they have received is a commission that requires them to depend finally and fully on the strength that Christ provides them on the authority that he grants them. As I said, their authority is not one that is found within themselves. It is a derived authority, authority that is given to them by Christ. And so, as we see then in our text this morning, in his instructions, as he sends them out on what we might describe as on-the-job training, if you will, as he sends them out and gives them instructions, he empowers them with the same power that he himself demonstrates He instructs them to preach the same message that he himself preaches. He calls them to live in the same way as he himself lived, and he commissions them with the same credibility that he himself had. Let's look at these as we unfold the text then. And he called the twelve together in the first verse, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And I said that he empowered them here with the same power that he himself enjoyed, which To most of us who've been going through Luke, that might seem a little bit self-explanatory. But if we turn back to Luke 4.36, we see that same language to describe the remarkable authority that Jesus demonstrated in his life. In Luke 4.36, after he had exercised a demon from a man in the synagogue in Capernaum, read, and they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And later in the Gospel, we've seen him demonstrate that same power with remarkable healings. We've understood broadly from Luke's Gospel that in the picture he portrays, Jesus is doing this work through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not to say that Jesus himself is not God and does not have divine power. It's to say that in his incarnate life, he did not live by relying simply on his own power as the Son of God, but rather he lived his life entirely dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit working in Him. We've seen that from the very beginning of His ministry. And we'll see it again as the ministry unfolds. And here now, Jesus grants that power and authority in some sense, perhaps not the, uh, in all the fullness in which Jesus demonstrated it. They don't go out calming storms and commanding the winds and the seas. But He does grant them that power and authority over demons and over diseases to heal and to cure. We'll come back to this point as we consider how to understand this in relation to our own ministry now in the present. In other words, we're going to ask questions like, is this descriptive of their experience or prescriptive for us? But so that I don't hide the lead or bury the lead, I'll just simply answer the question now. It is descriptive of their ministry, not prescriptive for us. And we'll see why as we come to it later. But here we see that Jesus endows them with the same power that He Himself demonstrated as Lord. Not to the fullest extent, but with that same quality, that qualitative sense. He also instructed them to preach the same message that he himself preached. Again, notice in verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now that proclamation was accompanied by healing, just as it was in Jesus' own ministry. The very last verse of this passage that we've looked at in verse 11, we see Jesus once again takes up the preaching of the kingdom of God to the crowds that come to him. And we've seen that as a theme throughout his ministry. Again, all the way back in Luke chapter 4, we saw that Jesus went out preaching the kingdom of God. In fact, he said it was the reason why he had come to preach. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, when the people of Capernaum tried to keep him in Capernaum, they wanted to have them all for themselves, if you will. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus went out, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. And he is the one who brought it. He is the one who inaugurated it. For a kingdom presupposes a king. And he is the one who was appointed as king over the kingdom of God. That was what he was preaching. The coming of the kingdom of God. And yet, as we saw in the parables, there are a lot of secrets that attend that kingdom. It doesn't come quite in the way that we would expect it. It comes in a rather different way, in a more subtle way. It comes within our hearts. We heard that for those of you who might have had the privilege to be at VBS on Friday night. What was read? How the kingdom of God does not come in a way, did not come first in a way that was visible, in a way that could be observed, but came first internally in the hearts of God's people. We read about that in Ephesians 2, in the way that God is building up, establishing His household, His kingdom, His holy temple, through the people He calls to faith in Christ. Here Jesus sent his disciples to go out and preach that same gospel he preached. In the preaching of the kingdom, he was bringing about the kingdom as God mightily would work through that preaching to cause people to accept that kingdom, to accept that message, if you will, of peace with God that we read about in Ephesians 2. So you have the same power derived from Christ. You have the same message preached as Christ we also see a manner of life that is consistent with the manner of life in which Christ lived. Look at verse 3 and following. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Now, in that first verse where Jesus gives them instructions, he essentially tells them, take nothing with you. You can imagine boys and girls, if your mom or your dad decided to send you on a journey, to send you somewhere, and they said, "Uh, what would you like to take with you? And you said, well, I'll fill my backpack with my favorite stuffed animals. I'll fill it with maybe a snack for the way, maybe a box of juice or something. And then your parents said, no, you're gonna go on a long journey and you're to take not a thing with you. No bag, no extra clothes. You'd say, oh boy, oh brother, how am I gonna make this journey? That is what Jesus did. He told his disciples to go out and not to take all of the things that they might normally take with them on a long journey. They weren't to take a staff. Now, Mark tells us that they were only to take one staff. And so some people, I I do want to address this problem, because some people will look at that and say, oh, see, there is a contradiction. And I want to suggest to you that this tells you more about the person who's levying the charge than about Luke or Mark. But let me show you exactly how. Mark, as he records these instructions, has Jesus saying... Don't take, something like, don't take an extra staff. Just take the one staff that you have, right? And here Luke says, take no staff. Well, you can imagine in the course of the conversation that both words would have come out of Jesus' mouth. Luke is not giving us a play-by-play description of every single word that came out of Jesus' mouth in the context. He is recording, in a summary way, the testimony of eyewitnesses. He told us that in Luke chapter 1. And so too is Mark recording the testimony of eyewitnesses. And you can imagine one person remembering that Jesus said, just take the staff that you have. And another person saying, don't take, remembering him, don't take a staff. Not because he only said one or the other, but he said both. And the idea is, don't go and get an extra staff. Don't build yourself up with all of these things. So both are true. It's not a very good charge. It's not a charge that rests on a solid footing. It's very easy to imagine how the two things can be harmonized in the process. But very often when people say, oh, here's a contradiction between Mark and Luke, it's telling you a bit, telling us a bit about the condition of their hearts as they respond to God's Word, looking for errors and grasping on to the flimsiest thing that they can find to say, aha, I found something wrong in God's Word. It's not that hard to find the harmony. We shouldn't approach that God's, word, God's Word that way. We should pr- approach it with an air of humility. And even if we can't offer a definitive answer to explain exactly how these two texts harmonize, it's not hard to imagine a way to harmonize them. We have no good reason from something like this to doubt the truth and trustworthiness of God's Word. We have every good reason to trust fully and completely that God's Word is true in every way. We've discussed that in weeks prior, and we'll discuss that again. It will be a theme here as we come to God's word. But I want to make it clear here today, as I do often, because it's an important it's important that when we approach God's Word, when we hear God's word, when we read God's Word, we approach it with that humility, that trembles at His Word, that recognizes that God is perfect and He knows a lot more than us, infinitely more than us. And if I don't understand everything in His Word, it doesn't mean that He's wrong. It means that I need to think a little more and trust a little more and Ask for a little more guidance and a little more help. And if we don't approach His Word with that humble contrition, God will not open up His Word to us, to our minds. If we approach it with a pride and thinks, I can stand over God's Word as the one who is the judge over His declarations, that's no way to approach God's Word. He will not graciously grant us the wisdom and understanding that we need to comprehend. So let me encourage you not to be misled when people Levy charges like this. They do not rest on a very strong argument, but they rather rest on uh, on some other kind of uh, tactic that seeks to uh, dissuade and to, uh, to suggest something without much argument. But in any case, coming back from that rabbit trail, let's continue to look at the way in which Jesus encourages His disciples and not just encourages them, but commands them to live in the same way in which He lived. Essentially, in these commands is saying take no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, neither take two tunics. Just, Just have the shirt on your back. No extra, this is like an undergarment that they might wear. Don't take an extra set of clothing. He's saying you're to live in complete and full dependence upon God. I've sent you out. I've given you the power and the authority and the message that you need. That's all you need. And this is a lesson to instruct them, to help them understand. Indeed, That is all that they need to fulfill their calling as apostles of the Lord. He goes on to say, In whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Here, there are two things that I want you to see in Jesus' instructions. What he is saying to them is, in the first hand, he's guarding against a kind of oh, what you might see sometimes in a well-known preacher if someone strolls into town and he's demonstrating great power and authority. Uh, The kids in this generation, I think, have a word for it. My generation used the, uh, the FOMO, fear of missing out. Their generation has FOSB, fear of something better. They're afraid to commit to something because they're always afraid something better will come along. They don't commit to relationships. They don't commit to jobs thinking, well, what if something better comes along and I miss it? and they commit to nothing. Well, in my generation, we committed to everything and overcommitted ourselves because we feared missing out. Well, here this is, you can see this kind of guard. They go into a town and they're doing mighty works, and they enter someone's house and receive the hospitality that that person offers, and then someone better comes along with, with a better, uh, a better uh, place to host them, with a better uh, 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 arrangement of food and a better banquet to serve them with. And you can see that temptation that might creep in. Well, I'll move from this house up a notch to the next house. Jesus says, no, don't live like that. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Stay in the per- with the person who receives you hospitably right away. That You're not, in other words, to use this great calling that God has given you to enhance your own status, to enrich yourself, to enjoy the good of the world. You just simply enjoy the hospitality of the person who first shows it to you. And then, as he turns and gives his final instruction, he shows them that they're going to have the same credibility that he has as Lord. He tells them, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. In Acts chapter 13, when we come there in the course of time, we will see that Paul does just that when he leaves a particular city where he had been preaching. Oftentimes, in that historical context, a Jew who is returning to Israel, to the land of Israel... To the, to the Holy Land, from the Gentile realms, would make a show of shaking the dust off of his feet. And what he was showing was that he was now coming back into the land that God had blessed, and he was leaving these Gentile uh, places, and he was uh, making a statement about those places from which he came. And it's interesting how, in this instruction, Jesus takes that and re- or gives them a new principle by which to do this activity. The people in their culture would have understand, understood what it meant. But the principle now has nothing to do with the land where you are. It has nothing to do with the house where you go. It has everything to do with how they respond to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What defines the people of God in light of the coming of Christ? Has nothing to do with whom you were born to, where you live, what kind of ethnic background you you, you have, the traditions that you received as a child. What defines the people of Christ is how we respond to the preaching of the gospel when we hear the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed and the grace of God that is offered to us through the one who died for our sins. And we receive that in our hearts and believe that. As we read in Ephesians 2, that's what makes us part of the household of God. Those who reject that message, it doesn't matter whom they were born to, it doesn't matter what traditions they received. It doesn't matter what was done to them as a child. They reject that message. They have rejected the kingdom that Christ proclaims. They are not inside of that household of God. They rejected the one who brings us into the household of God, who makes peace between God and us through the blood of the cross. And so Jesus, as he sent his apostles out to preach and to teach to proclaim the gospel. He taught them to do this very thing as people rejected them, as a testimony against them. Their credibility did not depend upon whether or not people accepted or rejected the message. Their credibility depended upon the Lord who sent them and empowered them for the ministry to which He called them. That's what Jesus is doing here in this brief passage where He gives instructions to His disciples and sends them out. I'll say a little bit about Herod, too, because the way in which Luke and all actually all of the gospel writers, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the the first three gospel writers, present Herod's story, they'd all intertwine it with these narratives in a sense. And it seems that they're suggesting we are to see them together. But at first blush, it looks like they're not really related, that Luke is just stitching together, haphazardly, if you will, a series of narratives. And we need to attend to them and think about what it is that Luke would have us understand, what it is that God would have us understand from His Word as we consider Herod's story. Herod is perplexed by what's going on, and we're perplexed by this passage. We can identify him with with him, perhaps, in that sense. We wonder, why does he pop up at strange times in Luke's narrative? What I want to suggest to you is that Herod gives us a warning against unbelief, but also an encouragement to stand firm against opposition, because God will, in the end, vindicate His people. Here we see that Herod is perplexed, and he begins to wonder what's going on as he hears reports of what Jesus and his disciples are doing. And he's heard reports of people saying, well, John has been raised from the dead, or Elijah has appeared, he's come back from heaven, or one of the other prophets of old has risen. And we'll see those kinds of ideas repeated in Luke's gospel. But Herod doesn't really know what the answer should be. He says, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he wanted to see him. He sought to see him. We can understand what's going on here by embracing an interpretive strategy that steps back to see the forest, not just the tree. By considering the way in which Luke, from time to time, unfolds Herod's narrative. And here we can simply turn back to Luke chapter 3 and see at an early stage the way in which Luke has introduced Herod to us. In Luke chapter 3, we remember John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance and a lot of people were coming and responding and repenting of their sin. But he, Luke, that is, presents Herod as the archetype of the one who rejected that message in Luke three eighteen and 19. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Herod was a wicked ruler, And John was telling him he needed to repent. He wasn't afraid to speak that truth to this powerful man, this ruler in Israel, just like he spoke it to the tax collectors and just like he spoke to the soldiers and all the people. You must repent and believe the gospel. Herod said, no thanks, I'd rather throw you in prison. He rejected that clear and definitive preaching. Is it any surprise that we find here in this later point, Herod, Herod has no idea what to make of the person of Christ. We saw, we saw that in Luke chapter 8 in the parables. Those people who could not understand the parables, who were they? They were people like Israel in Isaiah's day who had darkened eyes and whose ears were made deaf. They heard but could not hear. They saw but could not really see because they refused to repent of their sins at the preaching of God's prophets, the preaching of John, the preaching of Christ. And what that led to was utter confusion In Herod's narrative, we won't look at all these texts for the sake of time. But if you were this afternoon perhaps to go home and look at all the passages in Luke where you find Herod referenced, you'll see that there's a development in his person, in his descriptions, that he goes from one who rejects the preaching of repentance to one who persecutes the preacher. We see that in John referenced here. He beheaded John. He didn't stop at just arresting him. He cut off his head. And you can see some of the details of that episode in Matthew and Mark. But then he'll go on in chapter 13, verse 31 through 35, and you'll see that people come to Jesus warning him. Herod's seeking to get you. He wants to do the same to you. He wants to kill you. His opposition to the preaching of God's Word led to confusion. Confusion led to opposition. And then he's going to demonstrate him to be an utter fool. When Jesus is arrested at the cross in Luke 23, 7 through 15... Herod finally gets what he wants. He brings Jesus to himself. Jesus is sent over to Herod by the leaders who have arrested Jesus, finding that he was uh, under Herod's jurisdiction. Herod's happy. Maybe he'll get the spectacle he's craved. Maybe he'll see this sign. It's like he wants to just see a magic trick. That's all he cares about. He doesn't actually care about the message being preached, the peace that is offered. And he shows himself an utter fool As he demonstrates his folly by doing what fools do in the book of Proverbs. By scoffing and mocking the Son of God. And you see the development in his character all the way through the gospel. But finally, you come to the book Book of Acts and you see that there will be a judgment on Herod as well. In Acts chapter 4. First, we see that the people identify with Christ in his own suffering, just as he suffered under Pontius Pilate and Herod, so they recognize that in their persecution, they are only sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and they are only seeing the fulfillment of God's Word from Psalm 2. And yet in Acts chapter 12, as Herod exalts himself and fails to give glory to God, in a moment, God strikes him dead judgment comes, and the vindication for God's people comes. It came without warning, because Herod refused to repent, refused to receive the gospel. And the refusal to repent led to confusion, it led to opposition, it led to utter foolishness, and it led to judgment. But for God's people in all of that, there is an encouragement. Just as Jesus called his disciples to live in the same way that he himself walked. They would also share in his sufferings. They would be persecuted for the sake of the gospel they preached. They would be persecuted for identifying with Christ. But finally, ultimately, God would vindicate his people just as he vindicated his son by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his right hand. And so too, the people who share with Christ, in all that He gives to us, all that He's purchased for us, will also share in that vindication. And so we're encouraged to stand firm. Even when the world rejects what we have to say, fails to understand it, opposes it, acts in foolishness, and seeks to destroy us, we can trust that the Lord is the one who will finally vindicate His people. Well, let me apply a few lessons from this text then in our closing moments. I want to deal with a particular problem that sometimes comes up in our midst, and it has to do with the sign gifts. You see, Jesus did empower his disciples to do mighty signs in this context. But remember what Ephesians 2 told us. They are the foundation, along with the prophets, on which God built his church. Christ is, of course, the cornerstone. He is the one who binds it together. In Christ's ministry, we see that the mighty works that he did were necessary signs that demonstrated his lordship. And the signs with which he empowered his apostles were necessary signs not to demonstrate their lordship, but also to demonstrate the lordship of Christ that they truly were sent by him. So in the book of Acts, we'll see that they do signs and wonders. And that becomes an important proof of the authority that they have so that we trust them. When we read the New Testament. We're reading many documents written by the apostles and others that were written by their disciples and were sanctioned by the apostles. We can trust them because of the way in which God authenticated them as His apostles. But God does not give to His people the sign gifts today, the way that we see them in the lives of the apostles. We recognize that these have ceased on the basis of. Scripture demonstrating and showing to us that they're not going to always be necessary, but also in our own experience. We do see charlatans claiming to be doing some things like these. And we do see that sometimes people use these things to enhance their own status. Sometimes we're confused by the claims that others make. We can deal with those in a moment. But ultimately, the way in which we're to test a person who is sent by God, who is a messenger by God, is not by whether that person can heal, not by whether that person can prophesy of things to come, but by the conduct of that person's life and by the message that he preaches. Is his message consistent with the message of the gospel, the message of the New Testament, the message that we have? And is his life consistent with the life of Christ? Does he demonstrate Christlikeness in the way in which he lives? We've seen Paul, he never, in 1 Thessalonians, as we read that in the evenings, he never puts forward himself on the basis of any of the healings, but rather he puts himself on the basis of his own Christ-likeness, the way in which he lived among the Thessalonians. He calls attention to that pattern of his life. And even in the early church, in a document called the Didache, which means teaching, which claims, it's not scripture, but it claims to represent the apostles' teaching to the early church, it gave ways in which they were to evaluate whether someone was a true apostle or a false apostle. It makes no mention of signs and wonders. It makes mention of the life, the pattern of life, the way in which they lived. Did they demonstrate dependence upon God? Did they demonstrate a concern for others and not for themselves and their enrichment and their pride? That is the way in which we evaluate and test the message and the messenger in conformity to the way of Christ and the teaching that He taught. The 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 signs that the Spirit empowered the apostles to perform were miraculous gifts that were necessary in their time to show us the authority that God had granted to them. We don't have apostles today. We don't have the sign gifts today. We will someday if we live long enough and our Lord tarries, God's people at some time will see a person who will arise and deceive many by signs and wonders he performs. But his manner of life will not be consistent with Christ. Rather, he will set himself up as the one who should receive the worship that is due to him alone. So we don't need to look to those signs and wonders anymore. Rather, we look to God's Word. We look to the conduct, the faithfulness that is demonstrated by God's people as they preach a message that is consistent with His Word. We don't need those things anymore, and we should not look to them. Having said that, sometimes we hear reports, people saying something like, I had a dream in a foreign context, in a missionary context, and I was told to go and see a certain person, and that person then relays that they shared the gospel with him. How can we evaluate those reports and those kinds of ideas? I simply say we don't, have to. we don't have to. We don't have the means to test whether or not the report is true. Simply respond with the question, something like this. Well, what did you tell him when he came to ask you what you had to tell him? Did you share the gospel with him? How did he respond to the gospel? The gospel does not go forth by people independently receiving dreams and visions. The gospel goes forth through faithful messengers who faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as God does that mightiest of great works in that person's heart to cause them to receive that message and find peace with God, there is a miracle that we see. It is a mighty work. So simply turn to that. Say, what did you say? What did you believe? What did you hear in the course of that ministry? We don't need to deal with that question then. We don't have the means to evaluate whether or not a person dreams such a dream or not. But we can evaluate the message, and we can consider the messenger. Well, Finally, we are called anew to the same calling this morning. As I've said, not in the particulars. We don't necessarily have to imitate the apostles in the austerity of their life. And we, don't necess- we, we certainly will not be endowed with the same power and authority with which they were endowed. But we are to imitate them as they imitated Christ in responding to the gospel that Christ Himself preached, the gospel of grace that calls us to repent of our sin and believe in Christ and to share in the life that Christ Himself lived by sharing in the sufferings that often come to those who hold forth the name of Christ by willingly enduring the difficulties and the hardships and the opposition, cheerfully rejoicing that God would count us worthy to share in these things as well. And trusting our Lord and complete dependence upon Him to enable us to hold forth the gospel in a way that is clear, in a way that is clear, accurate and faithful to Scripture and faithfully trusting that God is the only one who provides what is necessary to cause that seed to find good soil and to produce a fruitful life in the person who hears it and receives it with faith. We are called anew to this life, a life that trusts in the Lordship of Christ and seeks to walk as He Himself walked. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we are called to this life, we pray that you would enable us to that end. That you would enable us to live faithfully as messengers entrusted with the message that you graciously gave to us, that we have received, and now as messengers who hold it forth to a world that is going the way of judgment and yet can find that grace through the gospel that you have given. We trust you, Lord, that you are the only one who can make us fruitful. You are the only one who can cause that message to be received by a person in his mind and in his heart, and we pray that you would do that. Be pleased to use us for that end. We pray, Lord, also that you would cause this word to be implanted deep within our own hearts, that we might be strengthened in faith, that we might grow in likeness day by day as we learn to follow him through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.